Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. It's your girl, Rita Pierre, your host. And as always, I hope you guys are striving, thriving, and surviving in these quarantine-infested streets. (laughs) So we made it to a new month, everyone. We are now in the month of June. So happy June, everyone. Today, specifically being June 7th, It is National Cancer Survivors Day. So shout out to all of the cancer survivors out there. We love you. We're continuing the fight with you. All of you who have family members or friends who are cancer survivors, just send them a quick text today, letting them know that you're thinking about them and that you love them. June is also Men's Health Awareness Month. And I really wanted to emphasize this because I am going to have a guest or two um, in the coming weeks to just discuss Issues relating to men's health. Um, The reason that this is really important to me is because I have male relatives who are currently ill and suffering. And a lot of it is due to the fact that they just refused to go to get checkups. You know, a lot of the issues that, you know, they're experiencing now could have been prevented had they went and got a checkup. And I know that this is something that is not just you know, part of the Haitian community, but the black community in general, a lot of our men, particularly our older men, they do not want to go to the doctor. They do not want to get checked up. I mean, I heard one guy's talk about he hasn't been to the doctor in like five years and it's unacceptable. It can't happen. So we want to definitely dedicate, you know, a show or two to men's health to really encourage men to take hold of their health. You know, where you guys are dying already, at the hands of, you know, the police and, and, you know, if you can take charge of your health to at least, you know, preserve your life in that manner, um, I urge you guys to do it because it's really, really sad when you hear of our, our men, our fathers, our uncles, our brothers, our cousins passing away due to illnesses that could have been prevented had they went to the doctor for that checkup. So, It's men's health awareness. We are going to focus on it. You know, I'm going to be posting things on um, my IG and according to RP. So definitely, you know, stay tuned if you know anybody who would also make a great guest Um, for the show. You know, talking about uh, men's health, uh, definitely send them my way. And it doesn't just have to be about the physical health. It's mental health as well, too. It's overall men's overall health. So There's that. And it's also Pride Month. June is Pride Month. So happy Pride Month to the LGBTQAI plus community. I believe that's how it's being said now. Um, So happy Pride Month there as well. So today's show, we have a very, very special guest by the name of Bernarda Villalona, who is a former Philadelphia prosecutor. And she is going to come on the show and talk about what we've been seeing in these streets with respect to Ahmaud Arbery, respect to George Floyd, Amy Cooper. There's a lot of legalese surrounding these cases. And a lot of you guys, because I've seen the discourse on social media, 
have tons of questions and you know we need as a community it's about educating each other right you know understanding what our laws are understanding what these charges are understanding what the process is so that when we're out here protesting and we're out here wanting to make a change we know what exactly is going on so that we can demand you know appropriately right so Bernard is going to come on and she's going to break down some of these cases, the Arbery case, the Floyd case. We're going to talk about Amy Cooper. She's going to discuss the charges, make it plain. Right. What do these charges mean? Um, what does the process really look like? A lot of you all are like, listen, these cases should be open and shut because we have video, but it's not always open and shut. And so she's going to talk about some of the challenges that may be presented in these cases. So you definitely want to tune in for this segment. But before we get into the meat of the show, I definitely want to say again, I mean, my big up section is a little later, but I want to big up. All of you who have been out here protesting, who have been donating to organizations, who have been volunteering your time, you know, for the cause. I was able to get out to protest um, during the week and it was a good experience in terms of just, you know, being one with the masses and, and, and making my voice heard. And, you know, I had my opinions, obviously, on whether or not I'll be back in these streets because of the Rona. And I talked about that on my social media um, but I do want to commend everyone who is out here. You know, yesterday I was seeing pictures and videos from friends who were out there making their voices known. And that, you know, it's important that we do what we need to do, that we come together and we continue this fight. So I commend all of you for that. With that being said, it is now time for the Urban Dictionary word or phrase of the week. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> the definition um what does keep keep mean it's on fleek can you use it in a sentence i feel a fleek gillette it's gonna be lit major key it's time for the urban dictionary word or phrase of the week so this week's urban dictionary word or phrase of the week is 12 so a lot of you have <laughs> been posting, what's 12? I keep hearing this 12 because we're seeing them on flyers. People are shouting out, you know, F12. I mean, one could only assume that it has something to do with law enforcement, right? If they're saying F, F something, F12 or F11 or whatever the case is. But um, although I think some of you guys have kind of pieced it together, even up until yesterday, I was in chat groups with people saying, what the hell is 12? <laughs> right? What is that? So, of course, you know, Urban Dictionary is always here for the save when it comes to our urban slang. So... I'm going to read two definitions because there are two separate definitions um, for the, the term 12. One, I guess, evolved over time. So originally, 12, uh, according to Sabrizi, is um, not the cops. So to clarify, 12 is not the cops, per se, not the police, not 5-0, not Popo, Um Number 12 is the narcotics officers that show up at your door or during a drug task force. In other words, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. They combat drug smuggling use in the United States, a.k.a. Uh, Migos uh, used it in a song, <laughs> uh, F12s. 
Um, and they say, quote, throw that shit, throw that shit 12 outside, referring to throwing the drugs because the DEA or 12 is about to kick down the door. Now, though, we have, I guess, adopted 12 to mean police, period. So another definition that they share here is 12, the police, any law enforcement agent. See Popo, see one time. Example, shouting 12 when the cops are spotted approaching the scene of some illegal activity. So for those of you who are still confused as to these memes, these posts, these sayings of 12, there you go. So we are now moving on to one of my favorite sections of this show. It is now time for the Big Up of the Week. So this week's Big Up of the Week then kind of turns into the Womp Womp of the Week. So bear with me, please. (laughs) This week's Big Up of the Week goes to my Haitian community. I know I big them up a lot, but we're always amazing each other, right? We're always doing amazing things. But I think this time it is warranted more so than ever, right? Big up to the Haitian community. So for those of you who have been living under a rock, who are not on social media these last couple of days, Netflix tried to come for the Haitians. And what I mean by that is this. Netflix had a documentary on um, Netflix <laughs> called the His- called History 101. And episode nine of History 101, it was a series, was entitled AIDS. And within this episode nine AIDS, uh, you know, segment, they had a portion where they stated that AIDS came to Haiti by way of the Congo. Actually, you know what? Let me break it down even further because the Congolese should also be very upset and highly offended by this. So in the documentary, they start talking about AIDS and then they, you know, pull up this monkey, this ape. And their theory was that the ape um, was the one that was carrying the AIDS, right? The ape, the, the ape had the AIDS and that the Congolese man, they portrayed a man, either ate the ape or hunted the ape. And so therefore there was some sort of mixture going on of, of blood. And then that's how then the Congolese man contracted the AIDS. They then went on to say that a lot of Haitians were working in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so the Haitians then contracted the AIDS and then brought it to Haiti in the 1960s. And then the Haitians then transmitted the AIDS to the United States. And therefore that is how AIDS got to the United States. Now the Haitians have fought this stigma Right. We were accused of being AIDS carriers for God knows how long they refused us to donate blood. We were being discriminated against and we fought. We protested. We marched to the point where, you know, the Brooklyn Bridge, there was like one hundred and fifty thousand people, I believe, in 1990, in April 1990, who came together, banded together to fight this stigma. The CDC then removed us as being one of the transmitters or causes um, or carriers of AIDS, right? So now fast forward in 2020, you could only imagine how outraged 
the Haitian community is to have Netflix, such a popular, such a a tycoon in the media industry with large budgets produce a History 101 episode suggesting, not even suggesting, stating that Haitians are the ones who brought aid to the United States. So what happened? We got wind of it and everybody and their mother started posting. We posted petitions for people to sign. I know I sent it to, you know, my chat groups. I post, I posted and reposted in my stories and on all of my social media platforms. And, you know, everyone I know did the same. And collectively together, we were able to get Netflix to take the episode down. So yesterday I saw it with my own eyes and verified that the episode was indeed taken down. So you go from episode eight to episode 10. As of now, I have not heard any apology from Netflix. By the time you guys hear this, maybe one was issued, but I have not heard an apology from Netflix My demand from Netflix is not just the apology because we all know the apologies mean nothing for the most part. This was a this was gross negligence, if you ask me. You know what I'm saying? Like History 101. Where were the researchers? Where how did this pass the production test? Either way, it happened. It got out in these streets. The people who saw it saw it. So Netflix needs to also issue a retraction of some sort in print, whether it be flashed over you know, on Netflix, like when you first click on the way you have, you know, Bezos posting Black Lives Matters as soon as you click on Amazon, they need to send a letter, some sort of email to all Netflix customers with this, you know, with this gross faux pas. And they also need to have some Haitian programming on either the Haitian Revolution, how Haiti is contributed to the United States and abroad. Like there needs to be some positive imaging, some positive um, Haitian history to to put t- to undo what they did. Like I said, those who already saw saw, and those who've taken it as gold has already done that. But Netflix needs to do more than just take it down in silence, right? They need to be public with their actions. And I'm not just, I don't just want an apology. I would like for them to do the right thing by issuing in a retraction, sending emails out to all their customers, letting them know that they made a mistake and that they, they rectified it and to have some Haitian programming out there. Those are my demands. I don't know. So that's why though, the big up of the week goes to the Haitian community because in less than 24 hours, we were able to get this done, which shows that when we want to do something, when we put our heads together, we can move mountains. We can do whatever we want. So let this be another reminder of the strength of the Haitian people. We, we have to know our power, people. We have to know our power. We have to know that there are strength in numbers. And this is just beyond the Asian community. With this fight that we're fighting right now, we need to be able to band together, come together. But either way, um, long story short, we are now on to the meat of the show. All right, everyone. I'm here with my very special guest, Bernarda Villalona. Bernarda, say hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of the According to RP platform. We're really excited that you're here to share your expertise and to shed some very necessary knowledge to the people with regards to, you know, the Ahmaud Arbery and the George Floyd cases that, you know, we're seeing play out in the media now. 
Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show and to be able to help people out and let them have a better understanding of what's going on on these two important cases from two different jurisdictions. We're dealing with Minnesota and we're also dealing with Georgia. Completely different areas, completely different laws. So if you would just take the time to tell the people who you are, where you're from, what do you do so we can get a sense of your experience? Yeah. So I've been an attorney for the last 16 years. Um, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. My family's from the Dominican Republic. So I am Dominican from the Caribbean and I'm a proud Brooklynite. I went to school here in public schools here in New York City in Brooklyn and then went to college upstate New York and went to law school at Boston College Law School. And since graduating, I have been um, doing criminal law. I've been a, I was a prosecutor at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. And after that, I came to New York and been a prosecutor and working on criminal cases and actually primarily homicide cases for the last 10 years. Okay. Now, Bernarda, you know, you're very well aware of what's been going on in these streets, you know, both on the on the actual legal front and then what's been playing out in the media and on social media. Um, so I really wanted to get in to discuss um, these two important cases, the Ahmaud Arbery case and the George Floyd case, um, particularly because the community, you know, we're, we're getting bombarded with all of this information and, you know, we want to be informed. We want to know what's going on so that we can demand justice properly. We can go out and we can protest and we can lobby and do what we need to do. But in order for us to do that, we have to understand like the actual process. And like you said before, you know, it's, it's difficult um, sometimes, you know, even as lawyers to really understand what's going on in the criminal law. So I wanted to just first start off with the Ahmad Arbery case. If we could just discuss, you know, a little bit of the background information on this case, um, and then we can get into some of the important questions that people want to know with respect to, you know, why did it take so long for the arrests to be made and, and things of that nature. Okay. So, of course, so Ahmad Arbery is a case from Brunswick, Georgia. So on February 23rd of this year, Sunday around 1 p.m., Ahmad Arbery was out for a run. And at some point, he stops inside of a construction site. He's looking around. Um, afterwards, he exits and continues his run. During that continuation of his run, per the video that has been released, we have Travis McMichael, as well as his father, Greg Michael that get inside of their truck. Both of them are armed with firearms, with, with guns. Mm. And they start driving and chasing after Ahmad Arbery. Doing that chase, actually almost at the very beginning, William Roddy Bryan also jumps into his car and continues in the chase. So now you have all three of these men chasing after Ahmad Arbery. And it's already been clear that when Ahmad Arbery was running, based on Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael's statement, is that they did not see Ahmad Arbery break into this construction site or actually go into this construction site. Mm -hmm. All they had to dad, Greg McMichael, was a hunch or a gut feeling or a gut reaction that Ahmad Arbery had committed some kind of crime or was responsible for some break-ins that supposedly had occurred in earlier in time. Mm -hmm. Either way, 
all three males. So we got two cars that are going after Ahmad Arbery. At some point, they corner him off, but Ahmad is able to actually just turn around and try to run in a different direction. Then we have William Roddy Bryant also make a U-turn and start chasing after Ahmad Arbery. We lose sight of them for about a few seconds or minutes, but again, we're back on the video. And ultimately, what we see is that Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael, they have their truck stop. And we have William Riley Bryant, his truck stop. In the middle, we have Ahmad Arbery, who then is in a confrontation with Travis McMichael, which is the son. Travis McMichael had already gotten out of his car with his shotgun. He approaches Ahmad Arbery. He shoots him. Ahmad Arbery is trying to defend himself. And when I say defend himself, he really never had a chance. He had no weapon. He was just running. All he had was his legs and his arms. So he tries to punch him. Either way, Travis McMichael ends up shooting him in the chest, then in his wrist. And then the chest again, and Ahmad Arbery drops and unfortunately passes away. We have William Roddy Bryan, who actually videotapes a huge portion of this pursuit of this chase mm. that, um, that took place. Unfortunately, really what happened, Rita, is that these three men, they chased, hunted, and ultimately executed Ahmad Arbery an unarmed African-American male. And race had a lot to do with it. Because from what we find out earlier this week with the preliminary hearing taking place, Travis McMichael, after he shoots and kills Ahmaud Arbery, he stands over his body and tells him the F word and also the N word. Hmm probably the last words that Ahmad Arbery heard as his life was leaving his body. Also, we came to learn that Greg McMichael, he had called 911. And when they were asking him what's going on, all he said was, there's a black male running down the street. Stop right there. That's it. You don't hear about a crime taking place. You don't hear that Ahmad Arbery had done anything. So this further confirms that the McMichaels really just started chasing Ahmad Arbery because he was a black man that was running inside of this neighborhood. And this is where we are at this point. And now you- we have all three males in custody. As you're recounting, you know, the the events, like I feel like my skin is like crawling, you know, as you're, you know, you're explaining the last words that Ahmad possibly heard, you know, as he, you know, died, right? And just seeing it all in perspective, how this was actually a hunt down, you know, because in the beginning we were seeing bits of the video and we were wondering who was recording, but we didn't know if he had anything to do with it. But now, like, with everything being pieced together, this was an orchestrated effort to kill this Black man. It was. It was. And actually, the preliminary hearing took place earlier this week. And just to, just to explain a preliminary hearing, all it was is a hearing where a judge 
determines whether there was probable cause that it is more likely than not that a crime was committed and more likely than not that the person that has been accused are the ones that committed that crime. And that preliminary hearing took place about seven hours long. And from that preliminary hearing, we were able to learn more facts that we didn't know before um, based on the news reporting. Like it was for the first time that it was revealed during this preliminary hearing that those words were actually said to Ahmad Arbery as he was laying on the ground bleeding. And aside from that, we also learned other facts that's not even seen in the video that have been shown in the media. But we learned that a palm print as well as fibers from the white t-shirt that Ahmad Arbery was wearing was found on a on the car of William Roddy Bryant, and that there was also a dent on the car of William Roddy Bryant, which tells us that, of course, Bryant wasn't an innocent witness or a bystander or a Samaritan just recording the incident. Mm-hmm. Ahmad Arbery's body made contact with Bryant's truck. You know how much how much of a how much interaction is needed, contact is needed of a human being being able to make a dent onto hard steel vehicle mm-hmm. and his fibers from his shirt found on his truck. So there's a lot there that unfortunately we don't have video that was captured, but it still helps us be able to picture what took place and tells us that William Roddy Bryant wasn't this Samaritan who was just video recording what took place. Because we also know that William Bryan, that when Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael were driving their truck, that William Bryan actually yelled out to him, do you got him yet? Do you have him? So obviously he knew more of what was going on. He wasn't out there minding his own business and just driving because he saw his neighbors driving and chasing someone. Hmm. So now we saw, you know, on video when Ahmad was shot, when he was, you know, on the ground, we saw the McMichaels, um, you know, around his body. People are saying, you know, this was all caught on video. You know, shouldn't this be enough? Like, what? why do we need any other evidence? Why do we need any other testimony to make this case? It's on video, you know. Um, so maybe if you could speak to to what really goes in to, um, you know, I guess make, making a case, you know. Um, I think a lot of people really are, in both cases, actually, with the Floyd, we'll go into that a little later, but they're just like, this was on camera. What what more do we need to convict these individuals? Mm-hmm. So I think a, a huge misconception um, with the public is that they think because a defendant or a person gives a statement admitting to what happened or that there's video HD quality showing you what exactly happened, that there's no trial, there's just put them away and put them in jail. That's it. It's over. Done deal. Close the book. But you know, we have the Constitution and everyone has a constitutional right to their day in court. So even with a videotape or even with a confession, that person could have said, I did it, but they 
there's still the procedure, the criminal procedure and the constitutional right that protects everyone. So they're entitled to their day in court, meaning that they're entitled to ask for a jury trial or a bench trial to go through the normal procedures of the criminal justice system. So regardless of that, what we have now is that we have this incident happened February 23rd. And it's pretty interesting with this case because this case has gone through so many different hands. I mean, I'm sure that you know that you have four prosecutors, four different prosecutors that have had their hands on this case. But because even on February 23rd, the Michaels, they weren't arrested. I mean, Michaels weren't arrested until May 7th. William Roddy Bryan wasn't arrested until May 21st. So it took some time for the apprehension, even though all of this was on video. Mm-hmm. But we just have to be mindful that one, the video did not show up or made to the public until actually May 5th. So we have this incident that took place on February 23rd, but we don't have the video until May 5th. So between February 23rd and May 5th, all you have is a he say, she say, mm-hmm. meaning that the only person that gave their side of the story were the McMichaels and Brian. And because Ahmad Arbery is dead, he can't speak for himself. He can't say what happened. He can't say that he was being chased for no reason. He can't say that they cornered him, chased him down, hunted him down, and then shot him three times. He can't say that. Because all you're left with doing the investigation, the initial investigation, you have the autopsy that tells you what happened, meaning that he was shot three times, but doesn't tell you how that took place. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't tell you or give you a visual of where Ahmad was initially, how it started, and how it actually ended. So aside from that, February 23rd until up to May 5th, all the investigators knew and the police officers knew was that the Michaels had said that they came into contact with Ahmad Arbery, who had been committing a crime or thought that he had committed a crime or fitted the description of a person committing the crime. And that at some point that Ahmad Arbery and Travis McMichael, that they were in altercation and supposedly Travis, that the gun went off or Travis McMichael was trying to defend himself. So all you had was the McMichael's word against a person that is laying dead on the ground who can't speak for themselves. So it is not until May 5th when this video, that's actually what's interesting, is that it was an attorney that had been consulted with by the McMichaels that actually leaked the video to a radio station. And then from there, the video was made public. And that's how it got the balls of justice actually running. But for the release of this video, let's be honest, we wouldn't be here right now. But for the release of this video, the McMichaels would not have been arrested. William Bryan would not have been arrested. It is this video and people speaking out and the protests and the constant social media and um, the news that got us to this point. Hmm. So now we're talking about the media and we're talking about the news and um, what we've been seeing is this, I don't know, this search for anything criminal, anything bad, anything tainting 
of Ahmad Arbery. And uh, I think it might have been about a week or two ago, I had seen a video which was of Ahmad Arbery, allegedly part of some sort of uh, theft ring. Um, and we're seeing a lot of these images and these videos pop up, you know, in all of the cases that involve, you know, you know, the, the attacks and, and murders of, of, of black and brown uh, men and women. We're always seeing this attempt to discredit the character of, of the deceased, right, of the murdered. Now, with respect to Ahmaud Arbery and this, this link they're trying to make of him being like a thief or some sort of, of robber, bur- burglar, is that, informa- that going to have any real bearing on this particular case? Because people are worried that this, this witch hunt for information on Ahmad will somehow taint, you know, the jury pool will somehow have some sort of uh, negative, um, you know, stain on his case. You know, Rita, it's something that always happens. I mean, how many cases can, can we, names that we can say of African-Americans of people that have died at the hands of violence? And if it's from a police officer or some kind of law enforcement agency, that all of a sudden that the person's past is leaked into the media. Mm-hmm. I mean, it always, unfortunately, it always happens. Um, one thing of how it may affect ultimately the results of this is that the jury pool of where this case is going to be tried may be privy to this information before they have even sat inside of the jury box. But of course, with Wadir, with the jury selection, when it takes place, the judge is going to ask whether they heard anything that may have um, put them in a situation where they are biased or not able to follow the law or be objective in listening to the facts. But regardless of this, it doesn't matter what Ahmad Arbery may or may have not done in the past. At the time when he was being chased and hunted and ultimately shot, these people didn't know who he was. These people had not known his past. They were making an assumption. And based on that assumption, they executed him. What is the relevance of what a person has done? No one deserves to die the way that Ahmad Arbery died. Mm-hmm. And that's the frustrating part when it comes to all these different cases is that you start hearing about a person's past, but does that make it justified for a person's life to be taken away? But again, it doesn't matter. But even in this case, that with all that information, and, and we have to be real, all this information that's being leaked out, you have to take it with a grain of salt because, mm-hmm. you know, things are just being put on the internet and people just say what they want to say. But we do have in this case with the McMichaels and William Bryant is the actual owner of that construction site where Ahmad Arbery is seen going in. Show the video. Ahmad Arbery is not doing anything inside of the property. He's just looking around. And it's been said that maybe because there's water there, he probably stopped there to get some water. Mm. But the owner of that construction site, he had never told the McMichaels um, about any break-ins or about Ahmad Arbery. It's not relevant. It's not relevant. And it's really trying to take value of life mm-hmm. on a person's life. Now, I know we uh, briefly 
mentioned the jury pool. Now, a lot of people are concerned and, you know, rightfully so when it comes to these types of cases, you know, how, how will the, you know, what will the jury pool look like? You know, we hear this term, you know, a jury of your peers. And so I've had people ask like, you know, are they going to make sure that the jury is balanced with black and white people? Like, how does that work out? You know, if, if, if the case is being heard in an area that's primarily white, does that mean that the jury is going to be all white? And if that's the case, what are Ahmad's real chances? So if you could maybe just talk a little bit about what, what this, you know, pool of your peers actually means. Uh, so we said that every person supposed to be trial or should be trial by a jury of their peers. But let's focus on this case. This case is in Brunswick, Georgia, a small town in Georgia. And probably none of us has ever even heard of Brunswick before mm-hmm. now. So if the trial takes place in Brunswick, if there's no change of venue, change of venue meaning that uh, the defense attorneys or even the prosecutor request that another city or county listens to the case, then we stay in Brunswick, Georgia. So Brunswick, Georgia, I don't know what the makeup is. So when they're picking a jury, they're going to pick a jury of people in Brunswick, Georgia, because you have to live within the county to even be eligible to be in the jury pool. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're dealing with. Like jury of your peers is people that's within that county of where the crime was actually committed. You know, Ahmad Arby didn't live in that county, so it's not like it's going to be people of his peers from his county where he lives, and that's going to be in that jury. It's going to be the jury pool of Brunswick, Georgia, however it is composed, whatever races live in that county, and also what names are drawn on that day, because it's supposed to be completely random. You get your jury notice, you show up on that day. They bring all these people into the courtroom and then they just start calling out names at random. Now, when we're talking about, you know, justice and fairness, how, you know, I guess, how do people feel comfortable in a system like this? For example, with this Ahmaud Arbery case, I'd have never been to Brunswick, Georgia either, but I could imagine maybe that it could be made up of mostly white people, if not all white people, let's just say 85%, just for this conversation's sake. So his, the jury in that particular case would be, would can potentially be an all white jury. When we're talking about, you know, race relations and justice and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, I mean, how do people feel, how can people feel confident that a, a, a true verdict, a real, you know, a, a fair verdict will actually um, come out of this? And when we talk about, Rita, when we talk about the criminal justice system, when we talk about the justice system in general, let's just remember that we're not talking about mechanics. What we're talking about is individuals. It is individuals that make up the justice system. It is individuals that make up the system itself. Mm -hmm. So we're asking, can we trust these people when we're saying, can we trust the system? Mm -hmm. So what we're left with, Rita, unfortunately, is like we have to have some kind of um, faith or hope that the jury that is selected that's going to hear this case is able to follow the law and or stay true to their oath. I mean, that's what we can only hope for or have 
faith in. Like, I'm not going to make a general statement that just because the jury may be all Caucasian, that we won't get justice in this case. Justice, you know, they're supposed to, with their verdict, speak justice, speak the truth based on the evidence that's been presented to them. The only thing I would just say, just in general, if you want to feel some kind of hope or trust and faith in the system is become a part of the system, you know, become uh, jurors, you know, don't just shy away and say, I don't want to be, I don't want to do jury duty, like yeah. work within the system, you know, become cops, become prosecutors, become defense attorneys, become judges. That's the only way that we can help shape the system that is comprised of people. Okay. Like everybody has a role to play. Yeah. And I think that's really important that you said that because a lot of, there are people who are just like, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a juror. I don't want to respond to this, the summons to be a, a, you know, a juror. I, I don't, I don't really want anything to do with the system. It's not for me. It wasn't built for me. It wasn't made for me. I want nothing to do with it, but I'm glad that you touched on it. You know, in order for us to, to see some sort of change, we do have to be part of the process. Yes, absolutely. 100%. We make up the system. Yeah. So now I know that we saw that these individuals, Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Roddy Bryant, they've all been charged. But I would like to have a discussion as to what do these charges mean? You know, with Travis and Gregory, it looks like they were charged with murder and aggravated assault. And uh, William Roddy Bryant was charged with felony murder and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. And so people are hearing these charges and they're like, but what, like, what does that really mean? You know, how much time are they going to get? And, you know, how much time are they going to spend in jail? So Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael were charged with felony murder with the underlying felony being aggravated assault. So with those charges itself, it, they have the possibility of doing life without parole or doing life in jail. I'm sorry, life without the ability of parole. Mm-hmm. So meaning that they would just spend the rest of their life in jail or life with parole. And that means that depending on the parole board, when they were released, then they can end up doing 20, 30 years and then be released after that. It all just depends on the progress and the parole board and the parole hearings and the people that speak and how they perform or how they are in jail, their um, conduct. So in regards to, again, the McMichaels, so with the McMichaels, the underlying felony here is the aggravated assault. And all it is is uh, aggravated assault is that they use a deadly weapon, this being the gun, that resulted in serious bodily injury, which would be the death of Ahmad Arbery. So William Roddy Bryan is charged differently. He still faces felony murder, which still has the same type of sentence, either life in prison with or without parole or even the death penalty. And that calls for the uh, Michaels as well. But uh, we haven't heard yet whether they'll be seeking the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So with William Bryant, the person that videotaped parts of this incident, the underlying crime for him is the criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. So what we're saying is that he attempted, he attempted to actually confine or detain 
Ahmad Arbery. And how do we know that? What actions did he take in order to confine Ahmad Arbery? So from looking at the video, we know that Ahmad Arbery, he ran towards uh, the McMichaels and even at some point towards William Brody. So Brian actually used his vehicle to cut off Ahmad Arbery. Mm. Had he not cut off Ahmad Arbery, maybe Ahmad would have been able to run through and ride, run into a place, into a house or somewhere where he could have been protected and not shot. In fact, there was even a point with Ahmad Arbery, he was running and doing zigzags where he ended up in a ditch. Mm-hmm. And still, because of the assistance of William Bryan and the McMichaels also chasing him, there was no way for him to go. He was actually confined. So that's why he's been charged more of with the false imprisonment as opposed to the aggravated assault as the underlying felony, because also Brian did not have a firearm. So it's definitely much more easier for the state to charge with the online crime of false imprisonment because we know from the videos and also now that we know that the white fibers of Ahmad's shirt was found on the back of the truck of the vehicle of Brian, that he had a role in this case. So now with respect to trial, you know, there are people who are wondering how come the trial hasn't started yet. Um, <laughs> what is the what is the timeline? I mean, I know it depends, but in a case like this, when would we expect to even hear the beginnings of a trial? So, well, one thing we have to take into account that we're still living in the coronavirus, COVID nineteen mm-hmm. yeah. um, situation, pandemic. So COVID-19 has had a huge, huge impact on the criminal justice system and the timing of cases going to trial, how to even get a jury, how to put people inside of one room together. Because remember, the jurors have to stay Mm -hmm. together and they'll be deliberating together and they're in this same room, probably a small room for any type of deliberation. But in a case like this, the preliminary hearing already took place. So that is done. So all the preliminary hearing is, is that the judge found there's probable cause that a crime was committed and they were transferred to superior court. So superior court will now take over the case. There's going to be hearings, different hearings like motions and the exchange of discovery, meaning the documents, the video, any statements that were um, taken. Um, Also, there'll be at some point um, hearings in terms of the legality of the statements that were taken. So that all takes a long time. A trial like this, and you're talking about three attorneys as well, I don't see this case going to trial at least for another year. Hmm. At least for another year. And another thing that you're talking about, you had four different DAs that had their hands in this case. Mm -hmm. And now it's finally in the hands the final ADA who took over the cases from a different county. So that was uh, Joy Holmes, who now the DA from Cobb County, who's mm-hmm. now been appointed to take over the case. So, and the Georgia Bureau of Investigations is the one who's investigating the cases and taken out of the hands 
of the Glen County Police Department, which, by the way, is where Greg McMichael had been working and retired from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a lot of people were like that sent up their spidey senses like this, this, you know, this cannot be fair if we have a case where the, you know, murder suspect was a detective working alongside these police. But I'm glad to see that there has been a change of, of venue, I guess, with respect to that. Mm-hmm. And in respect to that, yeah. I mean, you had the first DA, Jackie Johnson, who won February 27, four days after the homicide, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, had to recuse herself because Gregory McMichael had been a longtime investigator for her up until he retired in May 2019. So case then goes to a second prosecutor, George Barnhill, from a different county who recused himself because his son had worked at the Brunswick Prosecutor's Office with Gregory McMichael. But what Barnhill did is that he decided to make a finding. If you recuse yourself, you're recusing yourself without making a finding. In his opinion, he determined that there was no reason to charge the McMichaels. Mm -hmm. And he even advised the police that there was insufficient cause to arrest the McMichaels. And he even argued that the that the McMichaels act illegally under the Georgia's citizen arrest and self-defense laws, mind you, with no video. Mm-hmm. And it's after after this that the case goes to a third prosecutor, Tom Durden, um, who's from the Atlantic Judicial Circuit, and it's doing his time that the video emerges and that the prosecution is now starting to move forward. So now with all of this going on with this case, you know, what sort of legal challenges do you foresee, you know, with respect to the prosecution, with respect to the defense? Well, we got a glimpse of it during the preliminary hearing about what challenges we may have. So like I said before, you heard that Travis McMichael and just one example of a challenge is that Travis McMichael had stood over the body of Ahmaud Arbery and said the F word as well as um, the N word. How are you able to bring that into evidence without having to cut a deal with Brian? Mm-hmm. Because he's the one who actually heard it. So it's either Travis says it or the dad says it or Brian says it. You only have those three people that are able to bring that into evidence. I don't see another way of bringing that into evidence. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, and I don't think even that's a big deal, whether you actually even need that type of testimonial evidence in order to get a conviction in this case. The most relevant part is that they chased them and they shot them um, without no cause. There was no crime that they portrayed had been taking place and it wasn't justification. They weren't justified in shooting Ahmad Arbery. He was defenseless. And we also know that even at first people were saying that maybe it was an accident for the first shot to have gone off. But based on Travis's statement, we know that it wasn't an accident because he says that he actually shot him and it wasn't accidental. But it's a long road ahead. The thing is with jury trial is that nothing is guaranteed. It is not guaranteed that they will be found guilty. It is not guaranteed that um, that they would be found guilty or not guilty. There's no guarantee that they won't be 
I'm guilty of maybe uh, that's a charge. It's just something else. There's no guarantee when you go for a jury trial. So we just have to wait and see. Wow. But we also know that the Department of Justice, the Justice Department, has initiated an investigation into this case to see whether to bring federal hate crime charges. So, but that case and that investigation is going to be separate from the state case. Okay. Oh, I'm already tired. <laughs> so much information, but you know what? I think we, I think you definitely, you know, gave some clarity with the Ahmad um, Arbery cases to some of the questions and concerns people had. And so, you know, now we're moving on to George Floyd, which, you know, was a much recent case. It happened not too long ago. It's still fresh in our minds and there's still, you know, information and evidence and things still being brought forth. Um, This case, obviously different from um, the Ahmaud Arbery case. I think there's a lot of elements in this case that also have people scratching their heads. So if you could just you know, give a little background as to this case as well, a little discussion as to how this case came about, and then we can get into the, to the, the questions. So this case involving the death of George Floyd, completely different place that we're talking about, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, on May 21st, I'm sorry, May 25th, um, it's alleged that George Floyd had went into a store and passed a counterfeit $20 or $5 bill. I'm not sure the currency amounts. The owner of that store called 911. When the police arrived and the first two police officers that arrived was officer, well, former officer Kong and officer Thomas Lane. George Floyd had already been in his car with two other unnamed people. George Floyd had been taken and removed out of his car by the officer Kong and officer Lane. At some point, backup officers, being officer Derek Chavon and officer Tao Tao, had responded. But prior to them even responding, George Floyd had already already been sitting down on the floor and had been handcuffed. And we have video of that. He was calm. At some point, it's alleged that supposedly George Floyd was being combative, even though we don't see that. Mm. Um, And that they were trying to put him inside of the police vehicle and that he made his body go stiff and then making his body go stiff he ended up ultimately on the floor so we do have video of george floyd being on the ground and mind you the entire time he is handcuffed while he is on the ground officer former officer chauvin who's the senior officer at the scene places his knee in the neck of george floyd aside from Officer Vaughn with his knee to the neck of George Floyd. You also have Officer Kong and Officer Lane also on the back of George Floyd. While all three of these former officers are on the body of handcuff George Floyd, George Floyd is telling them that he can't breathe. He's telling him his body hurts. He's pleading with them to let him up. He's calling out for his mother. He's, he's, he's desperate. Yeah. He even at some point 
ends up urinating on himself um, for eight minutes and 46 seconds these three male officers human beings have their body weight on George Floyd who's rear handcuffed and laying on the ground out of those eight minutes and 46 seconds we know that for two minutes and 53 seconds of that time, George Floyd was no longer responsive. To the point that even before them, how we know he was not responsive, aside from the autopsy reports, is that Officer Kong had checked the wrist of George Floyd for post, and he had no post. And he even said, I couldn't find one. And still, despite this, they were still on the body of a human being, George Floyd. They just never stop. We know that EMS ultimately responds, but George Floyd was already dead on the ground before they even got there. It was over for Mr. Floyd. They place him inside the ambulance. They take him to the hospital where they actually determined that he died at the hospital. They just say the time of death, but really he actually died at the scene. It's more of a procedural thing when they say time time of death because only a medical doctor current pronounced the time of death mm-hmm. so taking it from there all the videotape starts being released surveillance starts being released and when we're saying releases people putting it out there in social media and it's getting a buzz and people are outraged and they're learning about what happened what's going on this happened on may 25th if there's an arrest then we start with the riots and the protests and it's not ultimately until a couple of days later is that the first officer, former officer, Chauvin, is actually arrested and charged with murder in the third degree. And then we take it from there. Just recently this week, the final three other officers, former officers, they're arrested and they're charged with murder in the second degree since Officer Chauvin's his charges were also upgraded to murder in the second degree. So now you have the charges of second degree murder third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter um, for these officers. But the other officers, Kong, Lane, and Thao, they're charged with aiding and abetting, mm-hmm. meaning that they intentionally aided and, and helped um, for this murder to actually take place. So now I know with the Ahmaud Arbery case, we had um, discussed um, – certain things again about why the video is not enough and how criminal background, you know, comes in. And we're seeing that play out in this case as well, too, where the criminal background of George Floyd is, is, is being, you know, published and, and, you know, people are now being, you know, exposed to his past life as a criminal and, 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 you know, the media and, and them, I guess, are using that as a way to discredit him. Um, throughout this process. Now, with respect to testimony, because we've been seeing a lot of video testimony um, take place with respect to, um, you know, the, I guess, the credibility of some of the officers. I think it might have been last week I saw a video of the club owner. So apparently it came came out that um, Derek Chauvin and George Floyd were actually co-workers at some local club where George, I guess, would uh, serve as a security officer. And I guess Chauvin was just extra police <clears throat> um, 
you know, response or whatever for this uh, local club. And so they had the local club owner come on and she, you know, in her um, interview essentially insinuated or maybe even stated um, that, you know, Chauvin was known to be a racial profiler whenever it was African-American night, you know, he was a little more aggressive than he was when it was Latin night. Now, does any of this testimony, um, have any weight in the, in, you know, the actual case when it comes to Chauvin's character, is any of this admissible to show some sort of like motive that he was a racist or, and that's why he killed George. So by looking at the charges and I don't think it's going to come in, what may come in is that possibly they knew each other. Okay. You know, we have to see how that investigation develops. Because still, based on that little information that we have, that they worked in the same club, none of that was the basis or is the basis for the charges um, for Chauvin. Because when you look at second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter, intent is not a part of any of those statutes. Mm-hmm. Like hate crime or being a racist is not a part of any of those crimes. Mm-hmm. You know, all it is is for, for example, second degree murder, which carries a maximum penalty of 40 years, is that while committing a felony and that being assault three, which all it is, is that you assault somebody causing serious bodily injury, mm-hmm. you unintentionally cause George Floyd's death. So really, that is the focus of the charges and of the trial. So it's going to be very difficult to be able to get an information at trial that Chauvin was a racist, especially at a state trial, because he's not being charged with any hate crime statutes. Now, with respect to that, because I have heard people ask questions, well, how come he's not charged with the degree that includes intent? Like we saw what he did. He intended to do it. We, you know, he wanted to kill him. We, you know, his actions showed intent. Why didn't they charge him with something that included that, you know, that element? So one thing we have to focus on is that remember when the initial charge of third degree murder came into place, is that we were dealing with a different district attorney who was handling the case. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the attorney general, Keith Ellison, was assigned to investigate the theft of George Floyd. And it was attorney general Keith Ellison who upgraded the charges to second degree murder from third degree murder. And it also was attorney general Keith Ellison who decided to charge the other three officers with the aiding and abetting of second-degree murder, as well as the second-degree manslaughter. So we're dealing with two different, um, two different agencies mm. um, that made a different decision. But ultimately, it's going to be Keith Ellison that's going to take the case on from now until, hopefully, until the end of, of this case. So people initially were like, oh, the third-degree murder, that is not enough. Mm-hmm. This case is so different than the Ahmaud Arbery case. One, we're dealing with police officers. But two, the vast majority of this incident like, was captured on video. We see him, we see these officers on top of George Floyd's body for this entire length of time because that's how we know he was on top of the body for eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm -hmm. So you had all you needed from the very beginning. There is nothing that has changed. Nothing has changed or been added 
for you to make an additional determination. Oh, based on everything we got now, there's a difference. And now we can charge them with second degree murder. It is all on the video. So in terms of what he could have been charged from the very beginning and what he's charged with now, the agencies were equipped with the same information. But there is a difference, of course, with first degree murder, second degree murder, and third degree murder. So eventually, in the beginning, when he was charged with third degree murder, that was the easiest crime to actually prove. Because remember, you're really only supposed to charge cases, charge crimes that you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt at trial. So we know third degree murder, completely different. No intent is involved. All it is is that you were acting, um, you, you were taking dangerous steps. That's, that's easy for anybody to know that it wasn't a dangerous act. And you knew that this could have caused a person's death, George Floyd. Like he was telling you, people in the crowd were telling you he's dying. He's telling you he can't breathe. He can't breathe. He was asking for help. You knew this. There, there was nothing that surprised you from it, but you still decided to kneel on his neck, take away his breath. So that was the easy charge. The second degree murder, again, that's also no intent is needed. All it is is that, like I said before, you were committing assault, meaning that you assaulted somebody causing serious bodily injury. Since no intent is needed because crimes that require intent, Rita, what we're asking people to try to determine beyond a reasonable doubt is what was in a person's mind at the time that they committed the act. What was Chauvin's mind? Like we can all make assumptions of what was in his mind, but what evidence can you put forward to a jury that is admissible to prove that what was on his mind mm-hmm. is what actually took place? And that's very difficult to prove. Yeah. I think that's why the attorney general decided to go with the unintentional crimes because you don't have to prove or try to show what was in his mind. So again, you know, actions speak louder than words. And when we're looking at the video, all we can decipher is, is based on his actions. With first degree murder, while that is the highest charge and it wasn't charged in this case, it requires premeditation. Premeditation, meaning that before you even got on the neck of George Floyd, it was in your mind that you were going to kill him. Mm-hmm. Again, premedica- premeditation, it doesn't mean that you have to have planned it at the moment before you even reach George Floyd that you were going to kill him. Premeditation can take place within a couple of seconds or minutes. But again, it is a charge that is very difficult, but still. It is one of fact for a jury to decide, you know, when we're talking about, oh, well, what could have been in his mind? Could he have premeditated? Could he have planned that from before? And, you know, he was carrying it out now. We have all these questions, which is questions that a jury may have. And the only way that a jury can even decide if um, he should be found guilty of first degree murder is if he's charged with first degree murder. But being that he's not charged with first degree murder, that charge, the jury's not going to consider that. They can only consider the charges before him. Hmm. So now in this case, you know, moving forward and being presented to the media and, and evidence coming forward and reports and autopsies and all that, um, there was an initial autopsy that was done that concluded that he, you know, George did not die of asphyxiation, that the knee on the neck essentially was not the cause of death. And then there was an independent 
autopsy report that showed quite the contrary. And then through the criminal complaint, we're seeing things like, you know, um, you know, he, he had pre-existing conditions, that he had possible intoxicants in his system, and all sorts of things that seemed like speculation in, in the complaint. Now, a lot of people are just like, how is that possible? Like, how was this complaint even allowed to be, to be drafted? You have all these, these, these defenses that are, that are built in, you know, for, for the defense in a sense. Is that typically how a, a complaint is, is, is drafted? And, and, you know, are these complaints typically drafted in a way where there's no toxicology reports, you know, no, no real, you know, labs or tests conducted, but you can still speculate as to the outcomes? So, you know, that, that initial complaint is, it's a complaint that I had never seen something like that before. And when I say that is that, of course, I've been a criminal attorney, criminal, practicing criminal law for the last 15 years. And of course, when you do prosecution, is that every case starts with a criminal complaint or a grand jury indictment. And in a complaint, you're supposed to set out the facts, Mm -hmm. the facts. You focus on the facts, not assumptions, not what may be or could have been or what what's in a person's mind, you lay out the facts. And the initial complaint where they charge Chauvin, and again, this is the first prosecutor, the county prosecutor, he charged just third-degree murder. And in charging third-degree murder, I saw information in that complaint when he's talking about what he may have had intoxicants inside of his body that may have affected. What is the may have? You have to stick to the facts. That is not relevant for the complaint. What facts make out this charge of third-degree murder? Mm -hmm. Now, regardless, so we know that two different medical examiners, well, an independent medical examiner also did an autopsy on George Floyd. And that was Michael Bowden. Michael Bowden is world-renowned. He is definitely known throughout the United States as as a phenomenal uh, medical examiner. Regardless of the two different examinations, what is important for any homicide case is what is the manner of death. And the manner of death meaning how did this person die? What is the definition? The different manners of death, it can be suicide, it can be accidental, um, it can be one trial. Uh, um, the death uh, when it's homicide is that it's caused at the hands of someone else with some kind of criminality to it. Both autopsies determine that the manner of death is homicide. And that is what is important for any homicide case, because if the manner of death is not determined homicide, a person can't be charged on any homicide charge. Mm. So there would be no case where homicide charges if the manner of death had not been determined or ruled to be a homicide. So for now, it's not going to have any any impact or a huge impact on the criminal case. Mm-hmm. Where it's going to have an impact is on the civil case when we're talking about probably damages. That's where it's going to have an effect. But it's not going to have a huge effect on this criminal case because the manner of death, regardless, is, was ruled a homicide. Okay, okay. 
So now, with respect to the officers that have all been charged, are there any mitigating factors that you see, you know, that could potentially exist for the, the three the three officers? So not Chauvin, but um, the three assistants. So there are, and I'm going to tell you that this case is going to be difficult to get a conviction on on all four officers. It's going to be very difficult because when you're dealing with, supposedly you had an officer that had only been on the job for about four days. It was Mm -hmm. either one or two of these officers that have been on the job for only four days. I I believe it was Officer Pat who had only been on the job for four days and Chauvin was actually supposed to be supervising him. So that is going to play a role because if you have a supervisor, you're following commands of your supervisor. Mm-hmm. But also, I think with the jury is that they're going to have to try to determine beyond a reasonable doubt is that each of these officers um, committed all the elements of the crime. So what facts do you have? Because you really don't have any words mm-hmm. that's being said. You don't have a statement. So you have the video. You have the words of George Floyd. And when I mean the words that's going to prove knowledge of these officers, you knew what was going on because George Floyd, he was saying like, please, 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 I can't breathe. Please, man, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Please, man, can't breathe. Just get up. I can't breathe. You know how many times he said he can't breathe? He said he can't move. He said everything hurts. He's telling him, I'm claustrophobic. My stomach hurts. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. Give him some water and still, please, please. And even at one point, George Floyd says, don't kill me. You're going to kill me, man. I cannot breathe. They're going to kill me. And it just continues, the pleading, the pleading, the pleading. These are words that all four of these officers heard. So they're Regardless, those all those words is going to play a crucial role in the trial of these officers. But the problem that you have is that you have, for example, Officer Lane, who at one point said, should we roll him on his side? I am worried about excited delirium or whatever. I want to roll him on his side. So. For him, that may be able to help him out because, you know, he's telling you that he's worried. He's telling you, you know, let's do something. But still, his actions were different because still, regardless of all these words, that for eight minutes and 46 seconds, these officers, former officers, were on the body of George Floyd. You also have Officer Kong, who checked the wrist of Floyd. So it's like, you can argue, well, you know, why check his wrist if your intent was to assault him, you know, that ended up in him dying. So those factors, those facts right there are going to help um, Kong as well as Lane. And then, of course, you have the final officer who was just standing and kind of just keeping watch, mm-hmm. just looking, but still he prevented anyone from coming to George Floyd to administer any kind of aid or help. It's going to be a difficult case, but you're dealing with former police officers. That's not going to help. You're dealing with also that 
the death didn't involve a firearm, but still involved, you know, Officer Chauvin is going to be the easiest of the four to actually get a conviction on. And I'm not even saying that you'll get a conviction on him. But when you look at the case, you know, that you have the strongest case against him. It's going to be a lot of pressure. This is going to be a lot of pressures. Again, with with this case, it again, it's going to be probably another year before this case goes to trial. And no guarantees that all four of them will be found guilty. They are just no guarantees. Oh, man. And I think that that, that right there is what, you know, makes people's skin crawl. You know, where we're watching these things play out on camera like we are seeing it some of these you know lives were there with them and to go through all of this just to get to a point where nobody's charged everyone walks away you know it's it's a hard pill to swallow i think for the community you know to be confronted with this type of reality it's hard it's hard but you know we have to look at the many wins. And when I say many wins is because, you know, when all four officers, or even when Chauvin was arrested, the first officer, we were like, we say, this is just a start. This mm-hmm. is just the beginning. So when I talk about many victories, it's like, okay, the first victory was, is that you have a formal officer that's actually arrested. Okay. Move on from there. Another mini victory. You have this same officer that's charged and upgraded to second degree murder because they could have been just left that second degree manslaughter or third degree murder. So that's another mini victory. Another mini victory that you have is that you have Chauvin being held on $1 million bail. Mm -hmm. As now, he's held on $1 million bail. He could have been easily given house arrest based on that he was a former police officer for so many years and there's no chance of flight. But still, the judge decided that he should be held on $1 million bail. Another mini victory. You have these other three officers that are also arrested and are also charged. And what are they charged with? The aiding and abetting of second degree murder. So all these small steps. It's still, they are many victories. It's not the ultimate victory, but all of this is still part of the justice system. It's still part of us obtaining justice. And also we even had like a mini victory this week that based on what unfortunately happened to George Floyd, and unfortunately it took George Floyd to die on this manner, Minneapolis, Minnesota banned chokeholds which I don't understand why it wasn't banned before. You know, after Eric Garner, New York, you would think that, hello, world, wake up. Yeah, You know, let's make some move. Let's make some changes. But either way, it took Minnesota for for George Floyd to unfortunately die because of an arm, a body putting on the neck of an individual of George Floyd for that change to take place. So I think, you know, of course, you can say, oh, my God, how can you call that a victory? It's all a start because we're also when we think about our history, how many officers, how many people have died unjustly at the hands of police officers? And there was never even an arrest or an investigation or any kind of transparency. So we are moving to a better time where 
now because of our words, because of our movements, because of our protests, because of the videotaping, because of people actually speaking out, because of social media, where we're making things happen. So again, takes me back right from the beginning when we talked about the criminal justice system. Justice system is based on individuals and we have to be the change that we want to take place to occur. We have to make it happen. It's going to be a long road. It's going to be a long road, but we have to continue being vigilant. We have to continue following the steps and these cases out all around the country um, and shedding light and just, you know, let's, let's not forget. Let's move yes. forward and not backward. And hopefully, of course, there'll be more change to come in other places aside from Minnesota. You see already here in New York, you know, our hometown mm-hmm. where Governor Cuomo has already announced his 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 stance and making changes in New York in addition because of what happened in the George Floyd case. We have to move forward and hopefully other states take take that same heed and steps to make changes. Oh, you know, also, I just wanted just to add when we talk about the changes that are taking place. Mm-hmm. Remember when state's attorney Marilyn Mosby from Baltimore City in Maryland, because of what happened to Freddie Gray, there were changes in Baltimore, like the requirement of body cameras. That was one major change because of the incident taking place. Mm-hmm. Also, here, even in Minnesota, we have the Attorney General, Keith Ellison, who took over the case. Maybe that is the change that we need in this country, that any time, just for transparency purposes, and for the public to have any confidence in the system and, and respecting the system, is that we should recommend that the AG's office for every state, when there's a police involved shooting or a homicide of an unarmed individual, that the state's attorney's office should be the independent agency that's actually doing a prosecution. So that way you don't have your fellow police officers or fellow prosecutors that you worked with in the past doing the investigation itself. And it can give some kind of trust to the public. So, you know, like here in New York, if there's any police involved killing of an unarmed individual, Governor Cuomo issued an executive order that the attorney general has sole discretion, I'm sorry, sole uh, prosecution of that case. Mm -hmm. And we keep it moving from there. I think that, you know, today's episode really spoke to um, the concerns and the questions that the people have with respect to the system, the process and these cases. Absolutely. You know, and I thank you for bringing these topics out to help educate our community. And I just ask the community, just keep on taping, keep on recording, keep on spreading things on social media so people can know all around the country. How are we going to know about these cases and injustices if people don't put it out there? Mm -hmm. Because usually our news stream is just news of what's going on in our particular boroughs or counties. You know, it's not telling us of things that are happening all around the country until it's big, until it's a big case. Absolutely. We develop the narrative. We say what the narrative should be. Always take control of the narrative. Mm -hmm. 
All right, everyone. Well, thank you again, Bernarda, for taking the time to be here and sharing your knowledge. And thank you all for tuning into another episode of According to RP on WJMS Radio. Remember to follow us on social media, on Instagram, According to RP. Uh, we're also on Facebook, According to RP as well. And with that being said, everyone, I will talk to you guys next week. You are listening to According to RP on WJMS Radio. Tune in each and every Sunday. I can't wait to come back. 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's all online.